I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. everybody welcome back so episode 23 we were talking about how we would like to dive into the pediatric world a little bit better when we were having that conversation uh, we came to a very quick you know no-brainer decision on who we needed to uh, pursue for this discussion yeah of course anytime uh, you, you want to speak to a physician you look at their credentials you look at their background you look at uh, what they've been able to offer the medical field. And when you can find a physician that also has influence in uh, and is highly respected in EMS, uh, you always want to go after that. And so we had a chance to sit down with Dr. Peter Antevy. uh, And uh, there's a lot of people in EMS that are going, oh, yeah, I know know that name. If you've been to conferences uh, or anywhere in the United States, especially in the Southeast, you've likely heard Dr. Antevi speak. His uh, his background is incredible. Decades of experience with pediatric medicine. Uh, Dr. Antevi received his medical degree from the University of Miami, uh, the University of Miami School of Medicine in 1999, and then also completed his uh, pediatric training at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. So that's uh, that's pretty impressive. That's two very high high caliber schools. Um, He then achieved a subspecialty degree in pediatric emergency medicine at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh um, before returning back to Florida where he was, uh, where he has been a pediatric emergency physician at the Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital since 2005. That's that's impressive. Yeah, he, he currently serves as EMS medical director for Davy Fire Rescue, Coral Springs Fire Department, Southwest Ranches Fire Rescue, and American Ambulance, and is the associate medical director for Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, Miramar Fire Rescue, and Seminole uh, Tribe Fire Rescue. And likely where you have heard uh, much of Dr. Antevi is he's been uh, the innovator of the Hantevi Pediatric Resuscitation System. And you can certainly go online and look at that a little bit more. But really what it's done is it's revolutionized uh, the way that we treat pediatric patients, especially in resuscitation. Uh, as everyone knows, um, treating uh, pediatric patients is not something we do every day. And then certainly when in a, in a high-stress situation, uh, can become difficult to remember dosages and, and all sorts of things like that. And he's been able to uh, kind of bridge that gap. However, he has not stayed there in pediatrics. As you'll hear today, um, he has branched out into all aspects of EMS and just really has a way of uh, kind of honing in on specifics and really uh, drilling down how you can treat uh, specific patients uh, with specific uh, problems in specific ways. Yes, very much so. And, you know, I'd like to point out a couple of high points in the episode just for people to kind of get an idea of what they're getting into here. I was very pleasantly uh, surprised. We spent a lot of time talking about the the moral and ethical characteristics of a pre-hospital provider, of any medical provider, really. I mean, he talked about um, a lot of very good aspects of that as well as the different uses of epinephrine. You know, he, he goes down into the different concentrations of when it's appropriate to use them and uh, also when it's not. And that was just very, you know, I, I took a lot away from that section. Yeah, and th- I think the thing that comes uh, 
more in this conversation than we've had before is uh, not only his passion for patients um, and for medicine, but his passion for EMS, the investment that he makes, and not just the investment that he makes, but how he makes himself available uh, to paramedics, really, probably 24-7. Um, and uh, I think that has probably gone uh, to promote EMS and create high-quality providers uh, more than just about anything else. All right, everyone, let's dive into episode 23. But before we do, uh, we definitely want to let you guys know how you can help us out. And that's one, give us feedback on what you're liking, what you're not liking, any questions that you have for previous guests and any things that you need us to address. Also, leave us a five-star rating. If you're liking what you're hearing, uh, you can do so on Apple Podcasts. You can do that on any podcast provider. Also, go to our website, subscribe to our list, leave us feedback and a five-star rating there. With that to say, let's, uh, let's dive into episode 23. All right, so Dr. Antevi, it is uh, such an honor to speak with you today and have you be a part of this. You are a giant in this industry um, and uh, so humble. Uh, what you have to say uh, and what you say every day and at conferences and the stuff that you produce is uh, just so helpful to the individual field provider uh, and works so well within a system and just helps everyone understand things um, on a way that uh, and things that are difficult to understand. So we appreciate your your work. Um, so just Thank start you. out telling us a little bit about yourself, a little bit of, about your background, your education and what you currently do. Awesome. Well, Jason and Brandon, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, the fact that you guys are taking the time out to do this, give information to other people. Um, you just said it exactly. You know, when I was in medical school, <clears throat> I found that my brain processed things very differently. And I had to go and kind of make my own cheat sheets and I had to learn my own way. And I, you know, I felt like I just maybe wasn't doing it right. And then I, I finally realized, it took me years to realize that the way that I process information is that I need to take a very complicated topic and make it very simple for my simple brain to understand. So my, you know, I, I, it's almost a force function for me that if there's something difficult, if Peter and Tevi can't make it simple for Peter and Tevi to understand, then I'm just not going to understand it. And Every time I kind of hit something along the way that just doesn't make sense to me, I have to reprocess it. And now I realize, you know, I'm 47 years old now, I finally realize that that's what I'm good at. Like that, you know, I'm good at taking things that are complicated and making them simple, but not because I learned it, it's because I was forced to do it because of myself. And um, so now that I could take things like pediatrics and make them simple and take things like stroke for adults, make them simple, cardiac arrest, simplify it. I think that if there's not an easy answer to a solution, then the solution is probably incorrect, right? Mm -hmm. If you have to do all this kind of like thinking and thought process and going and all, then it's probably wrong what you're doing. And so my background, uh, you know, is basically in pediatrics. I always knew that, I wanted to be in pediatrics and then and ever since my uh, elementary school like yearbook when you look at it it says i had a picture of me like on a tricycle and it says okay what do you want to do when you get older pediatrician go figure i don't know so wow. I, I ended up i ended up doing that but then when i got into pediatrics i knew that 
I needed to be in the complex, hardcore resuscitation, trauma, like I, I knew I belonged there. Uh, and anytime I was away from the ED or the trauma bay, I kind of always wanted to go back there, right? And so I found myself going into fellowship. So three more years of pediatric ER in Pittsburgh, which is like, you know, top shelf in, in, in the realm of not just pediatrics and pediatric ER, but also it turns out an EMS, you know, they're, they're an EMS hardcore place. So that's kind of where I planted the seed for EMS. And then when I got back to Florida in 2005 to, you know, be a real doctor for the first time where I was, you know, the decision maker, I found myself in my free time going to the station, to this firehouse, that firehouse and saying, Hey guys, let's learn pediatrics. And I was just doing that. And I was doing it for the nurses in the hospital. I just found myself keep wanting to teach people the simple way of doing pediatrics. But at the same time, I found myself in the, like, as the final decision maker, not feeling comfortable when it came to things like dosing and equipment sizing. And you have to remember, when you're in training, you're not the front person. There's always like two or three other people who are in charge. When I became in charge and the nurses were looking at me for the complicated answer of dosing, drips, equipment sizing, that's when my brain kept hitting a wall. And that's when I finally said to myself, okay, let's go back to what you know, simplify. And that's really what started me off on this journey. Not because I wanted to start a business because I hate business. Uh, not because I wanted to make more money because I'm not driven by finances. It's because I needed to come to work every day, actually without the stress and anxiety of what happens if another dead kid comes in my door. Mm. And that's kind of, that's how, that's how it started for me. Well, as, as an educator, that really, uh, that really hits home for me because I mean, Jason, you, you told me a long time ago, I, Jason's been a mentor of mine for years. Don't tell him I said that, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he kind of taught me how to teach and essentially almost the exact words that you just said came out of his mouth. If you can't simplify it, you know, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old then you don't understand right. it. And that's, uh, that really hits a personal spot for me because, you know, I tell my students the same thing. I, I say, make it easy for yourself. There's no reason to make this so complicated. So I love yeah. the fact that you just said all of that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Brandon, I, I appreciate that you saying that. And you all know, Jason knows that I'm not saying to like um, not deal with complicated topics, right? There's plenty of complex topics and, you know, knowing how to, how to, how to use a ventilator, knowing how to, um, you know, think through complex physiology. But I think that if your basic building blocks are very, very firm, your foundation is very firm, then the thought process and the thinking through, like when you're on, a, on, on scene with a patient, like for example, I just put out today on YouTube um, a five minute COVID and MISC in children, right? And, you know, I just kind of tried to distill it into what are the basic building blocks you need to understand? And then once you see it now, the next time, it's very easy. It seems complicated when you first look at it, but it's so, so simple. But if you're not thinking about exactly what the basic building blocks of MISC are, you'll miss it. Same with sepsis, you'll miss it. So our goal in, as educators is to give people that basic foundation 
that's easy to know, easy to understand, so that they can then synthesize later on the, com the complex case and they can have a differential that's more than too long, right? You wanna, you wanna be able to expand on your knowledge base. Um, and that's where we become great clinicians is by having a good educational background. That's why I'm like you guys. I love education. I love teaching. And I love to kind of see the spark in that student who then says, you know what? You just motivated me now to go and dive into a book, dive into the physiology, understand what a, um, an ABG or a VBG means because now I understand the basic physiology. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys on that for sure. Yeah, that is so important. I appreciate, uh, appreciate you saying that. So tell us, uh, what, what's your current role? Um, kind of what's your, your day-to-day in uh, practicing medicine right now? Yeah, so my day-to-day -day is, you know, 80% of what I do is EMS-related. So, for example, I'm very humbled to be associated with tremendously, you know, solid and with incredible people, by the way, uh, fire departments. You know, we're fire-based here in Florida. So from you know, Davy Fire Rescue, which that's where I cut my teeth as a medical director starting in 2010, and then uh, Coral Springs and Parkland, obviously that's where uh, the Parkland shooting was. I, I've been there since 2015. Also, uh, another amazing department, which is the biggest department I'm affiliated with is Palm Beach County Fire Rescue, which is you know over 1,500 uh, paramedics, uh, 50 wow. stations. It's the largest county east of the Mississippi River. Um, I'm also affiliated with um, private ambulance companies where we do mainly interfacility transport, but we do things like ECMO and balloon pumps, and we we we, we trans we transport across state lines, and just the great variability. So as you can imagine, I'm doing protocols all the time, CQI every single day, chart review, speaking to my medics when they call me. Uh, today we we had we we had a group meeting with. Um, one of my departments on a single patient who's been transported multiple times, um, calling the mom, calling the dad, calling the physician, saying, how could we better serve you? Um, if, there is a, if there is an outcome, with an, a, a, let's say a death, I'm calling that family. Um, it's just, it's basically something that it's really the most incredible position to be in, to be able to work with incredible people um, who are doing incredible things and having the support from the community, from the, from these towns and cities um, to kind of be able to do those things. That's, that's kind of like the majority of what I do lately. And since COVID started, I have been knee deep in COVID probably up to my neck. Um, so now I'm, I'm running and we're almost done with this, but a seven city, big, big research trial looking at antibody testing amongst all the employees of seven cities, so thousands and thousands of patients. We tested them at zero, six weeks, and we're now in the 12th week of testing. So that's almost finished. Just launched a big antigen study. So basically we're now testing employees um, using an antigen test. So a rapid, right now, 15-minute test instead of the two or three-day PCR test. So heavily involved in research when it comes to that. And that, that kind of is taking up a lot of my day lately. And then of course, um, with hand Teddy, that's been going for 10 years now. Uh, we're making just tremendous moves in with the software. Um, we just released something called CPR assist, 
where basically, you know, if you guys use a metronome, I don't know if you guys use a metronome, but I can tell you that we were using egg timers and we used what was on the life pack. And then we, we were missing the two minute, uh, you know, pause. And I didn't know when to ventilate. We needed a blinky light. So we, we heavy into creating software to continue hand heavy on the hospital side, on the EMS side. So I'm involved every single day in whether it's an hour meeting or a 20 minute meeting, but really trying to guide my team, which is now 20 people strong in, you know, continuing to make this software and the, and the education behind it uh, continue to evolve and, and that type of thing. So um, I have about 50, 60 balls going up every single yeah, day. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. I love it. Yeah. So I think there are probably a lot of people uh, familiar with the hands heavy system. And I think that has uh, done such a tremendous job uh, to address uh, an issue, you know, obviously with pediatric patients, uh, everyone knows they're just not a very high volume patient um, population. So we don't get to see a lot. And then when we, when we do, they are very sick and then to have to try to recall all of that. So um, obviously that has uh, solved a, uh, or at least addressed a very significant need, but overall along with that, and you know, some of the stuff with uh, medication and uh, with resuscitation, when it comes to the pediatric patient, what are some of the biggest challenges that you think are facing EMS today? That's a great question. And it just, the answer to that, you know, it took me years to figure out is that we were, we were training on it completely wrong. And if you look back at where that started, it started, remember there was a years ago and probably even before my time is that you didn't have a pediatrician. You had a family doctor. Right. Right. And that one doctor treated everybody from zero to, you know, from cradle to grave. Then came along the, you know, the internist and the pediatric. And then all of a sudden the pediatrician peeled away and they said, you know, I'll take the under 18 and you, you could take them from 18 and over. And that, that sounds good. And it's probably good from the medical aspects because you can really dive deep into, okay, this subset of patients. But for EMS, that mentality and that, that, that algorithm, if you will, is completely wrong because what it did was it, it tells that single person, that paramedic, that, okay, now when you deal with adults, you, you deal with this form of thinking. And then all of a sudden, when you get that low volume, like you said, Jason, pediatric call, all of a sudden it's close that door. And now, oh, wait a minute, is there a new way of thinking? And the answer is that's false. And I pushed that theory for many years mistakenly until I became an EMS person. When then I realized, what are we doing here? We're totally messing it up, right? So if you went into a pediatric ER today and said, hey, guys, the adult side's getting crushed, right? Go there and help them. They will run like hell the other way and cry all the way home. <laughs> They're going to say, what do you mean? I got to deal with an adult with chest pain? Yeah. I got to deal with a, an adult with right upper quadrant pain? Yeah. They, they think adult medicine is a completely different field of medicine, but it's not, right? And so that, that is the basic foundational error that was made years ago. That is the foundational error that we are trying to repair today to the, um, yeah, the unhappiness, I would say, of the people who like it the way that it is, right? So the 
pediatric people don't want to hear that the pediatric person is saying, let's treat kids and adults the same. They want to say, no, 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 no. They are different and we will treat them differently and we will educate on them differently and shame on you for saying that they're not different. Mm -hmm. So that basic principle, once people recognize it, is a game changer. It's the unlock that you need. So that is my mission now is to kind of go back and undo the, the decades of, 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 of bad foundation. And within literally four hours, we show people the way and then they go out the door and they say, oh my God, like I can't tell you, we get emails every single day. I get phone calls every single day, texts. You know, everyone's got my phone number. They text me, hey, hey doc, you wouldn't believe I had this call. It was my first one. I felt like a million, I felt different. And I just can't tell you how much that means to me. And like, for me, it's like, how could it be that we could change someone in a couple of hours and we haven't been able to do it for 30 years? So the answer is right there. It's just that will people accept it? And um, will it become the standard of care? And I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, fin finish this last point with this. That the Braslow tape, and you know, I commend Dr. Braslow. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, by the way. And he's, you know, really, he really deserves a whole lot of credit. The Braslow tape, this past month, actually, we're in August now, in June. Guess what they did to the Braslow tape? What's that? They, they added ages. They added ages. <laughs> so, wow. 10 years ago, 10 years ago, in January of 2010, when I started Hentevi, I said, folks, we need to start with age. Here we are in 2020, 10 years later, finally they said, we're going to add ages on. And it, ju it just shows that, you know, if, if whoever's listening to this podcast, there's plenty of people out there who have an idea that they know is right, but the world is telling them they're wrong. If you know you're right in the core of who you are, you go after that and prove, prove it to be true. Because if you, if you have a, an answer that was so easy to, for everyone to understand, the answer would already be out there. But if the answer is something that people think you're stupid and that you're way off base, you probably have something there. Mm. And yeah, that's, and I that's, think that's what I've learned. That's such a big problem. We've, we've actually spoken on this, on this podcast about this. The problem in one of the problems with EMS is that when something like that comes along, the, um, process to change that actually 10 years is uh, probably not that bad compared right. to some of the things that haven't changed in EMS. So, um, you know, and do you think that there's, um, you know, an issue with in, in EMS, you know, EMS paramedics, EMTs have to be all things to all people yet in clinical medicine, we have segregated out all these specialties. So you do have not just pediatrics saying, I'm not going to treat adults, adults, you have, you know, cardiology saying, I'm not going to treat GI, you've got orthopedics okay. saying, I'm not going to treat this. And we've, you know, we've segregated that out so much. Do you see that as a kind of change? We, we need to change that mindset in EMS? Absolutely. I mean, if you listen, there's not a, there's not a week that goes by that I don't get a phone call from somebody who's admitted to the hospital or who goes to a doctor, a cardiologist, and the cardiologist says, your heart is perfectly fine. Everything's fine. Beautiful. But you say, no, but doctor, but I've lost 20 pounds and I'm, you know, I'm having all these issues and I can't sleep at night. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I mean, but your heart is perfectly fine, right? Um, 
you can't do that in EMS, right? In EMS, it's what you what what, what people present with, whether they're a month old or a hundred years old. You have to know what that is. Unfortunately, on the other side of that, in the hospital, that ship has already sailed. The, now there are practices out there, believe it or not. Like for example, if you went to the Mayo Clinic today and you have no idea what's going on with you, here's what they do. You fly in and they, they, you, you meet one person and that person says, I'm gonna be your medical concierge. We're gonna go, I'm gonna take you to a room, we're gonna do a full examination, and then I'm gonna bring in all the doctors into one room and cardiology and GI and renal and pulmonary and everybody. And we're all going to talk about you as one big team. And then I, your concierge, is, I'm going to come back and I'm going to present you with what we think is really going on. So it's really like a holistic version. But I'll challenge anyone today, go to your doctor and say, I'm having, a, I'm having chest pain. Your regular doctor will probably say, I'm going to get you to the cardiologist. Go to the cardiologist and say, I'm having some belly pain now. And he or she will say, okay, let's get you to the GI doctor. And then you'll go and do all those things. And, and then you're at home and none of those doctors have spoken to each other. And you, the patient, end up getting the shaft at the end of the day, right? And so I think that that mentality of the, the, this extreme specialization is, is not healthy for people who don't know what's going on. And in EMS, we cannot use that model of thinking. We have to just do everything, you know, and maybe not to the detail that they do it, but like, for example, stroke. When I first got to my agencies, my medics just thought that stroke went to a stroke facility. They had no concept of what's being done at that facility, what are the steps, that a stroke patient should go to in the first two minutes of arrival. Um, what happens to that patient if they have a large vessel occlusion? Who's supposed to get called? They now know all those things. So when they don't see it happening at the emergency department, they're saying, shouldn't you be calling their interventional radiologist? And if not, I get a phone call and they say, hey, we're with patient XYZ at the hospital and they're not doing the right thing. So we in EMS need to know what our patients deserve and if that they're not getting that type of care then the system has to say you know should we be taking our patients to that hospital so that's what ems needs to know they need to know what the hospital is supposed to do so that when they don't see it happening they can speak up that's kind of where i'll leave that well, i really think the mindset that you're approaching this with too if we if we adapt to this or if we adopt it rather from the time that the paramedic is a student then man i tell you and jason and i were talking about this earlier the nerves on a pediatric call versus the nerves on just a an adult or a geriatric completely different completely different so if maybe we were to, to perhaps adopt this type of approach adopt this mindset in initial education and man that that could be that could you could save a lot of nerves for the for all the future paramedics on the streets so i mean i i could tell you i completely agree that it starts from the school perspective so i'm medical director for two paramedic programs and i look at the curriculum the curriculum is adult 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 
and then there is the pediatric days. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, Dan Limmer is a good friend, and you know he he writes paramedic textbooks. And I challenged him like a couple of years ago. I said we were in New Orleans at a conference. I said, Dan, you know you know what sucks? I said that in pediatrics and these textbooks, they kind of isolate the pediatrics to the back of the book, and you don't get to it till you know whatever semester. So he went back and rewrote the textbook. Mm. But he just he just published it. And he called me up. He's like, Pete, I did it. I'm like, what'd you do? He's like, I finally put everybody in one chapter. So when you're learning about seizures, it's adults and kids. When you're mm -hmm. learning about asthma, it's adults and kids. And so I've done that for my protocol set where there is no longer a pediatric section. So Brandon, to your point, we absolutely need to, from the beginning, wash away this, the kids are here and the adults are over there because that's completely wrong and it screws up and, you know, uh, further to your point, is people are dying in our field, in our specialty, because of the stress that you're talking about. Mm. They're dying. They're killing themselves because of a bad call, a medication error, and they're being blamed. But the, who we should be blaming is the system that we're putting people through. There's no way in the world anyone today will come out confident if they're being taught that kids and adults are two separate you know, segregated things. It's, it's, we are doing a disservice to the people, doctors, nurses, uh, you know, and paramedics. And that was going to be one of my big questions for you is, do you think that the way that we are teaching initial education, uh, neonatal resuscitated provider, PALS, I mean, do you think that all of these, that we are approaching it correctly if we say, during your initial education, you're going to receive NRP and PALS. You're going to go through these CAN courses and uh, you'll do pediatric rotations and clinical. Is that enough? I mean, is, is that truly enough to prepare them for what they're going to be doing? Listen, I mean, resuscitation is my favorite topic. So I'll, I'll start by answering that, that the basics of resuscitation, there are some basic fundamentals of resuscitation, right? That we all need to understand high performing CPR, you know, the rate, the compression fraction, the recoil, you know, not overventilating. Now, once you have those foundational things kind of locked and loaded, if you give me a one month old or you give me a hundred year old, those foundational things are the same, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are some additional things to learn on the pediatric side of you know, the airway is more interior, the head is bigger, where to put the shoulder roll, sizing of things. But when it comes down to how to perform high quality or what is the definition of high quality CPR for a child or an adult, the building, the building blocks are the same. And if you go look at the PALS and the ACLS CPR flow diagram, they're exactly mirror images, exactly the same. There, there's no difference. So when you go to your NR, to your neonatal re, uh, rotation, you need to know that, you know, how to evaluate a little kid, you need to know how to listen to their lungs and how to, you know, position their airway and all that kind of stuff. When you go into the ER and to do your, to look for the older kids, you need to know how to evaluate them. But when, when you have a person who's dead in front of you, you ought to be in the same lane, that left lane on the highway where you're going 80 miles an hour, that if I throw, I say, Jason, Brandon, two-year-old, you're like, got it. 62-year-old, got it. Two-month-old, got it. Like there should not be a hiccup in your, in, in, in the way that you're chugging along. 
Um, and th that's, so yes, there are nuances. Yes, there are differences. And so when I say treat kids like little adults, I don't mean that train one, like, you know, that we shouldn't train on pediatrics. I say that you need to be in that same lane on the highway and feel as comfortable because you, you should know that the outcome is depending on you in EMS. Uh, the outcome doesn't depend on me at the hospital because if you don't bring me a viable child with a heart rate, then I'm sorry, guys, I cannot help you. And the thought of, oh, my God, I'm too scared because this is a, it's a very low volume, high acuity kid. So what, what I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run and not do what I was going to do if it was an adult. I'm just going to hand it over to Peter and Teddy in the emergency department. That kid's dead. He ain't going to make it. Right. So, you know. There's such a big disconnect today in 2020 where people still don't understand that children's lives are saved by EMS. Now, they could be saved by the parents, and of course, telecommunicators have a very big role. But children who die with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest are not saved by doctors in the hospital. Zero. End of story. Well, that is such a good point. Well, I, I can tell you it's a hugely important topic. I've been, you know, I've been on the hospital side for two decades. I've been on the EMS side for a decade. Mm -hmm. And boy, I missed out on the whole EMS thing until I became an EMS person. And now I'm full-fledged EMS. That's awesome. And I look at the hospital and I say, oh, my God, like, they're so backwards with what they do. And we're so ahead of them, like, really ahead of them. And they, they'll almost never catch up because the boat is so big. And so it's so important for everybody who's listening to know that, hey, what you're doing on the EMS side is probably years ahead of what they're doing on the hospital side, but they'll never realize that. But we all need to recognize that, mm. that, that, that what we're doing is innovative, it's special, it's, it's important. And so um, I think that bridge has to, be, has to be created for both sides to understand how to walk across it. So. Yeah, that is so important, and it's so hard to find people that can speak both those languages and have influence right. in both in both areas. So, some what are some nuts and bolts of this? I know you know one of the stuff, especially with the medications, uh, you know, and we're changing from uh, you know in a cardiac arrest of one milligram of epinephrine for an adult, you start getting into weight based things. Um, how do we? kind of not only just reduce errors, but how do we get better clinical judgment uh, for pediatrics? Is this a thing where we just need to get in sim labs more? Do we need to do tabletop exercises? Do we, you know, how do we do this as a team um, approach to just keep our skills uh, sharp? So that's a great question. The, the answer, I think, goes more into the, the psychology of how we think. So, for example, in our course, and this, this is what we address in our course, I call it, it's called system two versus system one thinking. System two thinking. So if I tell you guys, what's 24 times 12, right? You're probably looking at me like, you're kidding me, right? Right, you're, you're, gonna take, you're taking out a calculator, right? But if I tell you what's 10 times 10, I go, that's 100. That's an easy one, right? Yeah. So... Though that, that simple example of a math equation is pediatrics, 24 times 12, versus the adult where you just know, boom, 10 times 10 is 100. It's easy. So the reason that people uh, get paralyzed in thoughts 
is because as soon as I tell you the word, hey, Jason, five-year-old, your brain automatically goes to system two. And, it's, and once you're in system two thinking, you're done. You're, you, you know, I basically cut you off from the legs. Why? Because when you're in system two thinking, your brain says, oh boy, I now need to know math. I need to, and your heart rate goes up. Your respiratory rate goes up. Your eyes dilate. Your eyes go up and to the right. Whereas if I kept you in system one, which is um, an adult, a 65 year old with chest pain, you didn't flinch right there, right? Because that's, that, that's in your system one zone. So what I learned after reading this book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Dr. Daniel Kahneman, guy's a legend, I realized that single uh, concept is the unlock for people then to understand that if I can keep system two thinking away and I can make you understand that no more dosing, no more mathematics, now I can start to teach you about MISC. I can start to teach you about croup, the severe asthmatic, status epilepticus, and I can, I can keep you in the zone. So you have to bring that person's train of thought away from the fear-based, which is like a system two type of thing, to the I feel comfortable zone. Once you make that first step, then the sky is the limit, right? Um, because it, what people don't realize, just I'll give you an example. We give people a scenario in our course of a two-year-old having a seizure. And almost every single course, half of the class of very experienced people miss to check the blood sugar. They just miss it. But when we give them a 62-year-old having a seizure, <laughs> they say, give me a blood sugar. Yeah. So I stop them and I say, why did you miss the blood sugar 30 seconds ago? And they don't have an answer, by the way, as to why they missed it. They just say, you know what? Oh, my God. But the answer is system two. So if, if your brain goes into system two thinking, when you hear the number five-year-old, you're done. You're done. So the big unlock, and I wish the American Heart Association and the people who do PALS come to understand that until you bring those two units together, adult and pediatrics, and you create them as one, you'll never make people be able to focus during a pediatric call in the way that they focus for an adult call. Just, Absolutely. it's just how it is. Yeah. Well, Jason and I were talking about something that on that note, for whatever reason, people, and whenever we're talking about people, newer students or new recent graduates, all the way up to seasoned providers, people are so intimidated by the use of epinephrine and pediatric mm -hmm. patients. Mm -hmm. and that was going to be one big thing that we wanted to ask you about today. I mean, just the use of epinephrine in general, you know, broadly talking about cardiac arrest, difficulty mm -hmm. in breathing, all the nuances of that, one to 10,000 versus one to 1,000, mm -hmm. racemic epi. Um, mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts of the usage of epi and cardiac arrest for pediatric patients? First of all, you guys, you guys must know that, 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 you know, what my favorite topics are. I love, I love the topic of epinephrine. Why? Because it's just like, you know, you guys started the call with me today, which is, you know, some difficult topics, making them easy. Epinephrine is a difficult topic unless you understand it. And then once you understand it, you're like, and I totally misunderstood the drug. 
No one ever explained it to me the right way. And so it's a beautiful drug if you understand it. It's a scary drug if you don't understand it. And so it's very, very simple. And the fact that there is one medication that they have complicated for us, um, but all it really is is one single drug that has many different uses. But here's the interesting part. There is no form of epinephrine that's made today that can be given to an alive person through an IV. You cannot go grab epinephrine off the shelf from Boundary or whoever and say, oh, let me drip it in or squeeze it in to a person who is alive. So there's, let's start, there's Epi 1 to 1000. That's made for anaphylaxis and that's given to alive people intramuscularly, okay? Now, that same Epi 1 to 1000, yes, you could give it to a dead person through an ET tube, but we don't really do that anymore because of the fact that we have the IO. Um, then that same Epi 1 to 1000, you can nebulize for a kid with croup or asthma, right? So I've just given you one single drug that should never, ever be given through an IV. People don't know that, okay? 1 to 1000, you should never be giving it through an IV. Now, they used to make it in a 30 cc vial. I think some people still carry that. Yeah. Yep. And but you only ever use 0.3 or 0.5 ml out of it. So of course you're going to make a mistake because you're going to say, "Oh, big 30 cc vial. Hey, give me a syringe." And next thing you know, you're drawing up three mLs and not 0.3 mLs. So then, so really, if I was going on vacation, all I would ever ever take with me is one to one thousand. And you probably say, well, why is that? Well, because I can make everything else from that one vial. I can make one to 10,000 by just adding nine mLs to one mL of one to 1,000, done. That's my cardiac arrest epi. I could then take another 10th of that and make it, I can dilute it down by tenfold and now I'm at one to 100,000. And I can finally make the first time I can take that syringe and give it to a live person or I could dilute it down even further and make it into a, a more dilute epi drip and I can drip it in slowly to a person. Um, and so knowing epinephrine and knowing the, the different types of different forms, how they can be used um, is very important. And I created a video, it's on, all this is on YouTube. It's called an epinephrine epiphany where I go through one to one, one to 10, one to a hundred, and then the, the four mics per ml and then one mic per ml, and you could see everything of how do I use this drug. But more and more, I see people who are taking the one to 1,000 and they want to give it to somebody who to, through an IV. More and more do I see people taking one to 10,000, trying to give it to an alive person, right? In PALS, it says, if you have anaphylaxis, take, you know, 0.1 milligrams of epi and give it to a person. But what they don't tell you in PALS is to, you should never give it as one to 10,000. Because if I take anyone on this, who listens to this podcast and I take one to 10,000 and I give it to them, they will all end up in the cath lab. You will all end up with ischemia. And the bradycardia algorithm for PALS says, give one to 10,000 to somebody with a pulse. Right. So I'm still not a believer in that. I'll still go to one to a hundred thousand. So if you have a pulse and Peter Antebi's treating you, 
you're, you're, you're never going to get one to 10,000. And here's why epinephrine is even, if you really want to get to the next level of epinephrine, how many times, Jason or Brandon, have you heard the story where you're, you're coding a child or an adult and someone takes their fingers and they try to feel for a pulse, no pulse. They forget to look at the end title, which is now cruising along at 40, 45, 50, 55. And they say, no pulse. Give another dose of epi 1 to 10,000. And guess what that does to the person? You kill them. They had ROSC. So the term PEA, right, pulseless electrical activity, is a misnomer. That is not pulseless electrical activity. It's you can't feel the pulse with your finger. There's electrical activity. If you have PEA, but you have an end title of 3540, you don't need one to 10,000. You need one to 100,000 or you need an epi drip. So again, you know, uh, maybe it's hard because I don't have images behind me kind of showing, showing all this, but just to recap, epi one to one is for people who are alive only through their, through their muscle for the most part. We, and again, that's because we don't really do an ET tube anymore. Epi one to 10,000 is for dead people through an IV or an IO. And then you have to physically make yourself everything else if you want to give epi IV to a live person. So just if you know those three buckets and you can kind of go and explore, and I would tell one of my medics, take the one to 1,000 and then I want you to make everything else down the line. And then once you start to understand epi from that very basic kind of mechanism, then you can really start to be an expert in, in, in cardiac arrest and resuscitation. Absolutely. And do you mind if we share that video? Oh, please. Yeah, that's, that's, awesome. that's a video that uh, I would love for you to share. Yes. Absolutely. Can, can, you, can you talk specifically about, um, well, I'm going to use the term racemic epinephrine, um, and we're probably most of us who use that term incorrectly or what we are making the assumption of or what we're calling racemic epinephrine. I think there's a lot of people that are afraid of it. Can you can you kind of go through, number one, when is it appropriate? When is it inappropriate? And how do you give it? Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Racemic epinephrine is nothing more than someone took one to 1,000 uh, and they concentrated it even more. So like we all think that one to 1,000 is the most concentrated form of epi. It's not. Someone made racemic, and they made 0 0.5 mLs of it, which is the equivalent of 5 mLs of one to 1,000. They're exactly the same. And it's so silly, in my opinion, to even use racemic because when, when they give you that little 0 0.5 mL, little nothing of a, of, a, of a vial that you have to open up, what do, you, what do they make you do with it? They make you dilute it with saline right back to what you would have used. <laughs> you if, were. You just, if you would have just taken one to 1,000, three to five mLs, dumped it right into your, your nebulizer and nebulize it. And, you know, we've known that since the 70s, right? So um, racemic epi really is not necessary to nebulize to purchase that, right? It costs more money. So what we do in my systems is we just take, you know, anywhere between three and five mLs. So if you want to be safe, take three mLs of one-to-one, -one, dump it in, don't dilute it, don't add any saline to it, and nebulize it. And the only time you'll ever cause a problem 
is if you're dealing with a premature kid in the ICU and you give them the full 5 ml nebulized, it'll really constrict their veins, their, their vessels in their brain and other places, and you can cause them to have a problem. But for anybody else who's full term and you're giving them 3 mls, have at it. You're not going to cause them any problem. And the beauty of epi nebulized is the two things. One is it works for croup very, very well. Beautiful drug for croup. But, you know, for asthmatics, epi also has beta 2. So where I've screwed up in my career is that I used to give albuterol to someone who I didn't realize was a crouper because I didn't hear the barking cough. And albuterol makes croup worse. So if and so epi treats croup beautifully, but also is a beautiful drug for the bad asthmatic because A, it's giving you more diastolic support because it's giving you that squeeze. B, it's giving you beta 2 agonist support, so it's helping you open up um, those airways. And so um, epinephrine is my go-to drug if I just don't know what I'm treating, right? Do I, it's a croup, is it asthma? Um, and surely if it's really bad asthma, um, having epinephrine um, nebulized is an important thing. So on this note, this is amazing that we're getting to this point. Do you care if I throw a little bit of a, not a case study, but I mean, yeah, a little bit of a case study towards oh, you. I love so, to, yeah. So let's say this is a, a new medic. Uh, so it's a newer medic, just fresh out of school, hasn't run that many uh, pediatric patients, especially low, sick, acute uh, respiratory patients. So let's say you're called out to a, uh, a residence in reference to a, an eight-year-old with difficulty in breathing. Uh, it's a smaller kid. You know, they're not, they're not obese at all. Um, they're obtunded when they approach. He hears what he thinks is Strider, goes up, starts listening to lung sounds, and the kid's chest cavity is so, so small that he's like, man, I don't know, that, that's high-pitched sounding. I don't know if that's wheezing. Is that Strider? man, what, what is this? And so, you know, you see retractions, you see accessory muscle use, you see fatigue. Um, where, where do they start and when do they start it? Great. So this is, this is a great case. So it's, you start from the basics of ABC, right? Airway breathing circulation. So obviously if the kid's uptunded, the first thing you got to do is manage the airway, right? And if it's an eight-year-old, you, it's, it's, it's very basic, right? You're, you know, the kid's flat, uh, and you can just basically uh, jaw thrust, chin lift, open the airway up, and then see what you have, right? Um, you, you're going to have your BVM, and you can just uh, very, very easily, if the kid needs assistance, he's obtunded, you can very easily just kind of see what you have. With your fingers, you're, you can tell a few things, which is, you know, what is my compliance of this chest, right? Now, when you have a kid who's asthmatic, um, it's important to understand the physiology of asthma is that they have trouble getting air out, right? And so if they're air stacking um, over time because they can breathe in easily, but they just can't get the air out, so you would automatically kind of be able to feel certain things. Now, obviously, um, if you try to bag this kid and nothing went in, you think you have to think of a foreign body, right? So as you're doing all things, you're getting information, you're getting history real quick, but it's, if the airway is not open, 
you're in trouble. And so when we, when we say the word airway, we don't mean, you know, the lung, we mean, can air go from the outside to the inside? And will a maneuver make the difference? Will a jaw thrust make a difference? Does an OPA make the difference? And when I try to bag, A, does it go in? Do I get chest rise? Um, how does it feel in my fingers when I'm trying to bag this patient? And then obviously you can go to, you know, step number two, which is, you know, the, the B part of it, which is now what's really happening down below um, and what am I dealing with? And so um, the basics, and you know, this is why when I, when I go around the country and people say, oh, I'm only an EMT. No, don't ever say that. Because if you're good at the basics and you're good at knowing how to open an airway, uh, throw in an OPA, throw in an NPA if you have to, this should be like routine. There shouldn't be any hesitation knowing how to manipulate a BVM so that you're not, you know, these fingers are not crushing into the soft tissue where in kid, you're going to close that airway off, you know, knowing how to make that seal appropriately using a two person seal. If you have to, if you can. Um, so in this particular kid, it's get the kid flat, open up the airway, use a good, um, you know, head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, um, throw down an OPA and then kind of just, Get this kid to where you know what you're dealing with. And then you can move to the next step. If this kid has very tight lungs and the mom says, yeah, he's been wheezing for you know the last 24 hours. He's a bad asthmatic. He's been intubated three times. Then you know what you're dealing with. And then you're full-fledged into what I would do is I would go, I am epi in that particular case, right? Um, and then I would... I would obviously, if I can bag the treatments in or I would get this kid albuterol on board, mm. get this kid an IV. Why an IV? Because these kids are always volume depleted. Their, their lung is squeezing down that heart. That right ventricle is completely you know, crushed. And the, you know, the minute you keep putting in positive pressure, you're gonna, that, 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 kid is, that right heart is not going to fill. And the minute you try to intubate, that kid is going to die. Mm -hmm. So asthmatics need airway support, but they also need to be resuscitated with IV fluids and they have to have a good blood pressure. So the kid you're describing to me, if you're describing to me a severe asthmatic, by the way, I uh, made another video, five minute video called the really sick asthmatic, where I describe all this stuff in detail. It's basically, if you're going to go down the line of intubating a severe asthmatic, and you haven't, you don't have an IV, and you don't have push pressure yet, and the kid doesn't have a dose of IM epi on board, and you don't have that blood pressure maintained, the minute you paralyze, the kid dies right on the spot. Why? Because the only thing saving that kid is the negative pressure. When they, when they take that deep breath, right, that right heart fills full of blood, and then it ejects out, you know, through the aorta, basically, you know, as it goes through the system. It feeds the brain. It feeds the heart. The minute you take away that negative pressure, that right ventricle never fills anymore, and, you, and that diastolic pressure goes to zero, and they go into cardiac arrest. So, you know, the, the case you just described, you need to be able to come in, make an assessment, know what you're dealing with. Once you know what you have, you go, you branch off into, okay, this is my sick asthmatic algorithm. Okay, this is my RSV, you know, type of algorithm if it's a younger little baby 
oh, this is my, um, you know, I have something in the airway algorithm. Where's my blade? Where's my McGill? Take that out. Um, this is my severe croup algorithm. So you, you really have to understand what you're dealing with. So then you can fire off and go off to the correct algorithm. But for the person who is a first year medic listening to this, what I would love for you to do is say, that kid's sick. That kid's airway needs to be attended to. Basic BLS, open airway, OPA. Okay, I got the airway. I'm good. BBM. What are my SATs? Throw in an entitle. Where am I with my entitle? Okay, hey, someone take a listen. Okay, I hear great breast sounds bilaterally. Oh, I don't hear breast sounds on the left. Um, could this be, you know, a pneumo, attention pneumo? Okay, uh, hey, mom, what's been going on? He's been coughing a lot. He has a history of going to the ICU for needing a chest tube two years ago. Oh, okay. Let's let's actually, you know, fix that tension pneumo. You see what I'm saying? So let um, me ask you. Let me ask you two follow up questions on that. One is, um, I'm a little concerned that you never mentioned um, a pulse ox and what the O2 sat is because. I think there's a lot of people that think, well, we certainly can't <laughs> treat a patient with a breathing dif difficulty breathing, especially without a room uh, O2 set. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, usually that's your first go-to. Um, so I'm a little concerned that you're not too concerned about a room a room set. Of course, I say that jokingly, and I sure. am just uh, about to do backflips here. That the fact that you <laughs> never mentioned the word pulse ox, I am just absolutely right. thrilled at that, and I, I appreciate that. So, if uh, and maybe this is too broad of a question, but if we were to take it from an asthmatic to a croup or epiglottitis or mm -hmm. something that's not a mechanical obstruction, what is the threshold to actually intubate this patient? Great. This is a great question. So the, the most important thing with that type of child, the croup or the um, epiglottitis, is that kid is going to be is going to be is going to get sicker depending on how you treat them. So I've seen it a thousand times where kids been having se se severe croup, they get to the hospital, and then something happens in the first five minutes where the kid cra crashes. You, you know what happens? They showed up to the hospital, right? So what do we do at the hospital that screwed things up? We take a kid who was at home on mom's lap, tripoding, getting that epiglottis open, getting the airway open, uh, drooling outwardly, and all and, and calm on mom's arm because mom is holding and consoling and everything. And now all these people run into the room. They, you know, six foot people. They 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 they're over this kid, and all of a sudden the kid gets scared. And then someone says, let's lay the kick flat, boom. All of a sudden, the end title goes from 45, 50 to 60 to 65 to 70, cardiac arrest. Mm. So I think first and foremost, from the skill level of treating a kid who's got croup or epiglottitis, you have to check yourself and your team. And you got to get down on one knee. And you got to look calm, look people in the eyes. Don't talk loudly. Speak calmly. Hey, um, Brandon, go ahead and grab me uh, Epi one to one thousand. Let's nebulize it, and then, hey, little Johnny, I'm Dr. Pete. We're gonna we're gonna help you out. You know, what's your name? How old are you? Okay, all of a sudden he's getting a nebulizer. Then, you know, we're gonna tell mom, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we think it is. Um, I want you to hold little Johnny right on your lap, just like you're doing. Calm him, keep him calm. We're right here with you. We're giving him oxygen through this little nebulizer thing. Um, if it's okay with you, um, once he gets a little bit better here, 
we're going to do a full evaluation. We're going to we'll start an IV to give them some IV fluids in case we have to give them other medications. Is that okay with you? Why am I saying the words, is that okay? Not because we want the mom to say, yes, I'm giving you permission, but you want to give her control. You want to allow her to keep her son or, ch or daughter calm. So with these sick children who are not deadly sick yet, it's all in the approach. It's all in your initial, how you deal with the child and the mom. And if you come in rushing, crash and burn, the kid will crash and burn right in front of you. These situations are almost never that you don't have at least two to five minutes to, you know, assess the situation, get them to trust you, make good eye contact, let the kid trust you. And then you're making slow movements towards getting this kid fixed. So if you were to follow me in the emergency department where the parents rush in, right? I walk slower. I, I will speak slower. And I'll only bring in one person with me to the room if the kid is really having some severe issues. Why? Because I don't want to make that kid worse. So, you know, they say first do no harm. Unknowingly, we make the situation worse for ourselves, specifically in those two cases that you just told me. Now, if it's a cardiac arrest, it's, we know what we're going to do. It's, it's, you know, all hands on deck and we go right to it. But all these other things, you really have to be a savvy provider and um, understand how to kind of um, act in that situation to get the best outcome for the child. So yeah. that's, that's great. That is, thank you so much for going through that. That's perfect. Um, what on that note, is there something, or is there a time when you can recall where EMS made a truly a, a huge and significant impact on a patient and made the difference that saved the patient's life? Oh, are you kidding me? Every single day. <laughs> I mean, uh, let me tell you what, I'll give you, I'll give you a small example of that, I was on the call today, I told you earlier with, with one of my crews, and it was you know, a long drawn out case, I'm not gonna give you the details, but here, here's what my, um, you know, this, this is Ricky, one of my EMS captains. He said, and then I gave the mother my cell phone number, and I took her cell phone number, and I told her that when I leave here today, if you have any questions or anything that you need to talk to me about, just call me. And I said, you did what? I said, that's amazing, right? Uh, you know, years ago when I first started working at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital and they gave me, you know, they gave you the card. Here's my card, doctor card, Peter and And I said, where's my cell phone number on this thing? And they said, cell phone number? I said, yeah. So when I give it to the patient, they have my number. Well, we would never do that. I said, well, why not? Oh, well, we don't want the patients calling us. And so I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove it to you guys. So I, 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 you know, I used to give my card out. It was, it's a running joke that, you know, I've got my cell phone number. I give my number out and guess in, 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 you know, 15 years, almost 16 years of Joe DiMaggio, like I've gotten 10 phone calls and they've all been, Hey doctor, wanted to thank you so much for what you did yesterday. Or, you know, we're at the doctor here today and he told me something that was opposite of what you told me. Can you explain? Absolutely no problem. And so you know, the impact we make in EMS is not the tube going in and it's not that I got the dose right. Like what, what I want to get people to is when you're locked and loaded so well, and here's the trick, here, here, here's the, it's not the trick, here's the, 
here's the, the, the meter by which you can measure yourself. When you walk off the ambulance and you're walking into the home and you can look mom right in the eyes, right? You can look her right in the eyes with that comfort of, I'm here to help because I know I can help you. You're there, right? That, that's the day that you say, two-year-old, 62-year-old, it doesn't matter because I do the same for everybody. But that parent is going to look at you, is going to think of you a week and a month from now, and they're going to say one thing. When they were on the scene that day, I remember they, they treated me nicely. They looked me in the eyes. They were calm. They knew my son's name. They gave him a high five. You know what? And everything they did, they explained it to me. And they said, is it okay if I put an IV in? When you ask parents who were the providers that really made an impact on them, it has nothing to do with diagnosis. It has nothing to do with your, with your differential and did you put the IV in? Nothing, zero. But when you left the emergency department and you said, Mrs. Jones, I know that you know, this has been a rough day. Little Johnny broke his arm, but we gave the pain medication. The pain went from a 10 to a zero. I'm so happy to see that. You've been a trooper. I'm passing you off here to Dr. Antetti in the emergency room. Great doctor. You're going to love him. He's really funny. You know, that, you know, just like, you know you, you're kind of making yeah. it like, hey, you know what? We're just like you guys started off the podcast by saying, let's talk like we're talking, having a beer together. Absolutely. That's what families remember. And so I can give you a million stories of um, the incredible job that my medics do on a technical basis and on a diagnostic basis. But for me, they're like that's that that's expected from me already like you know where, where i see people elevate their game is when uh we have one of my captains named alex when they resuscitated a child from a drowning and everyone thought that kid was going to die everybody the doctors it would have been very easy for alex to never go back to that hospital room where the kid was on a ventilator in a coma for weeks but what did he do on his days off he went in there. And you know how hard it is to talk to a mother when her child's in a coma and to say, I'm with you. And I'm the paramedic who treated her. So guess what happened 10 months later? The kid walked out of the hospital, right? That's awesome. That, that's, the, that's heroic, in my opinion, to, do, to have a hard conversation, to do the hard things when nobody else, not even the hospital will do them. That's an EMS professional that that, that I'll, that I'll die for, you know what I'm saying? So like, that is the beauty of EMS is that you have people who just take it to a whole nother level. And in my opinion, that's what we're, we're serving. We're, we're here to serve other people. We're not here to make money. We're not here to, you know, uh, get all the glory and blah, 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 blah. And so, um, you know, that's why I love this profession. And that's why, you know, I love what you guys are doing because you're, you, what you're trying to do is kind of, educate people what are we really here to do every single day right this is this is it so boy that is so that is so well put and i think that gets lost in uh so much in education we don't teach that we teach uh you know here here's how you're going to save a life and certainly you're going to get to do that but that is very little of what we do every day so we're going to wrap this up um boy we just appreciate um what you're doing uh you are inspiring and i know people are listening to this and they're going to get frustrated that they don't have a Dr. Antevi um, as their medical director and that has their back. Where can people go to find 
some of those videos that you talked about, um, some of your, um, you know, the, the project of Hands Heavy that you're working on, but probably more uh, some of this, the resources that you provide. Where can people find that? Yeah, so the, I would say the, the best thing to do is to go to, the, to YouTube, uh, number one, and everything, every video I've ever put out is on the YouTube channel, right? And I've kind of put it under Hands Heavy Minute. So there's agencies around the country who use like one video a month and they just go through that. Also on Facebook, so two to three times a week, I'm posting something on Facebook that has to do with um, some research paper. And I'll take the difficult to distill research paper and we'll, we'll, we'll put it into a, a little Facebook post. But I'll always say, click the link, read the paper, right? Because mm-hmm. I think it's important for people to know that. Like we just did one on Push Presser Epi. Uh, ben Lawner uh, had a great paper and we, we just kind of put it out there. Um, uh, Twitter. So if people want to contact me directly, go to Twitter and tweet me and I'll answer everybody back. Um, if you Google my, my phone number on the, on the web, it's there. Text me. Right? <laughs> we'll um, put that on the front page of the, yes, of our, uh, yes, of our website, yes. Dr. Antevi cell phone yes. number. <laughs> right. My, 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 my email is Peter at handheavy.com. That's my personal email. Email me. Um, you have to remember, we are now, um, our system is used in over 1,500 cities in America. And so I, I give everyone my phone number and everyone knows that, you know, I don't consider myself better, smarter or than anybody else. And if people want to call me, text me, email me, do a research project with me, um, uh, you know, it's the, the door is always open. Now, the expectation is that someone's not going to call me to say, hey, um, I'm interested in this. Hey, doc, I want you to do this. I mean, more than likely, people are coming to me saying, I'm passionate about this. Uh, there's a guy named David Dufek up in the northern part of Florida. He wanted to make these wrist straps um, so that we can kind of, you know, you, you know, use that more effectively in EMS. And I said, I'll help you out. But he didn't make me do anything over and beyond. He was doing everything. He just needed the advice. And years have gone by. Contact him all the time. And now he's got a product in the market and all he did was he just linked in me and you know, but he, he's committed and he's like, you guys, you guys didn't ask me to do anything special except talk on a podcast. But the fact that you went and got the podcast, got all the beautiful equipment, which I'm jealous about, um, <laughs> you know, like to do what you are doing takes you to step forward and do something. So if people are out there listening and they have a passion, they have something, and, and they want a little bit of advice, and they want to hear my opinion on something, reach out. But, you know, I want to see people who are as committed, who are doing the work, um, who are not looking for the easy pass to success, because nothing like that. There's no such thing as easy. You have to work. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you for your time. Uh, I think uh, so many people are going to be uh, able to take away so much of this. Hopefully this will lead to uh, more questions and more inquiries um, and inspire people to kind of go the extra mile, um, not only for their career, but uh, for their patients and how they can impact those lives. So thank you very much and uh, hope to have you on again sometime. All right, Jason and Brandon, you guys are awesome. I really enjoyed it and yes, uh, I really uh, look forward to all the other podcasts that you make because I, right. I will not listen. 
I will not listen to my own podcast, but I'll listen to other people. <laughs> okay, best of luck to you. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.